In today's episode of the LNL podcast, Brandon and I again get to sit down with Chris Wozniacki. We continue our discussion from last week on the atonement before we switch gears and talk about prayer. What is prayer? Is it possible to change God's mind when we pray? And if that's not what prayer is doing, what exactly is it doing? We talk about this and much more. Welcome all of our listeners to the London Lyceum, where we hope to encourage you to think deeply and clearly. And we're back again with our guest, Chris Wozniacki. He is uh, really the guest of honor because I have learned so much from talking to him. Uh, And I'm very interested in this topic of prayer. But before we get to what is prayer, what does that look like? What are some challenges to prayer? um, I want to give Chris a chance to little elaborate further on the doctrine of atonement and some objections. So Chris, why don't you go ahead and walk us through um, what a little bit about the objections to what we were talking about. Yeah. So um, last time I mentioned an objection that is called the incoherence objection. And basically uh, the idea is that there are some necessary necessary conditions for an act to count as a punishment. Penal substitution does not meet those conditions and therefore it's incoherent to speak of penal substitution now the specific condition that penal substitution is supposedly thought not to meet uh, is what philosophers call the expressivist function of punishment and the idea is that punishment expresses condemnation of the wrongdoer now because because christ hasn't actually done anything wrong god cannot actually express condemnation or disapproval against christ so the idea is that penal substitution um, is incoherent as an idea because it doesn't, it, it actually, yeah, it doesn't, uh, it's like saying uh, a married bachelor, right? That by definition, you can't have a married bachelor. So by definition, you can't have penal substitution. Um, now, I've tried across a number of my works, I've tried to lay out ways to respond to this objection. Some are ways that I, um, personally hold to and others are just sort of throwing out ideas that might help those who want to adopt those ways. Um, Now, more recently, I articulated a way that I'm pretty convinced by. uh, And the idea is this, and here I'm drawing from William Lane Craig and his recent work on the atonement. Um, So he points out that there's this thing called vicarious liability. uh, And the idea is that somebody who's a superior, like a boss or a master or whatever it might be, um, a master in like ancient Roman times or a boss in a corporation today, they can be held liable for the failures or crimes of their subordinate. Now, if this is true, and we tend to use it nowadays um, across all sorts of legal proceedings, um, then that seems to be a counterexample to condition four. And nobody actually has a lot of qualms about vicarious liability. So it seems as though our intuitions say that condition four, the expressive condition, um, doesn't necessarily always have to factor into punishment. So that's William Lane Craig's idea. And he just uses vicarious liability as a counterexample. Now I tend to think, or at least nowadays, I'm tending to think that vicarious liability isn't just a counterexample but that it can actually, it actually explains sort of what's happening. So if you think back to Genesis, right, um, in this imaging relationship that uh, is spoken about in Genesis, it seems as though human beings are given the task of being vice regents for God. 
So in some real sense, Christ is the true image of God, uh, the true king of creation, and we're just his representatives or we're his vicars. And he is the superior, right? And we're the subordinates entrusted to carry out this task of, um, of making creation flourish, um, the cultural mandate, that kind of stuff, right? So if you take this idea of vicarious liability seriously, then it really looks as though we have parallel cases where, um, in, so like in legal proceedings, it's the master or the, the boss who's held responsible for their subordinates' actions. Um, now, if that's the case, then it looks like we could possibly say that we, Christ is held responsible for his subordinates' actions. And who are his subordinates? Well, those whom he's given the task to um, take care of creation, that kind of thing. Um, so I think that idea helps get around the incoherence objection. And there's actually another thing, um, Oliver Wendell Holmes, he's, he was a legal scholar in the 19th century. And he says that this idea of vicarious liability is probably, and he's just making conjecture here, probably um, built upon this notion that there's this fiction that the boss or the master and servant are one person. Um, so it, so I quote him here. He says, quote, it is hard to explain why a master is liable for the acts of his servant. Probably master and servant are feigned to be all one person by a fiction. Now, when we think about union with Christ, that's not, at least in my opinion, that's not just a legal fiction. That's an actual metaphysical reality. So we really are united to Christ. So it looks like that's even more grounds to say that vicarious liability might explain why Christ is able to be a penal substitute. Got it. That's really helpful. And this is another reason why you should tune into all of our episodes because you get bonus treats when you that's do right. <laughs> uh, when you're talking with Chris. So that's the nature of the atonement we were discussing, uh, adding on to last week, what we were talking about uh, with the atonement. Um, and now we want to shift gears. And we want to discuss a little bit about the topic of prayer, because I know, Chris, you've written fairly extensively on this topic as well. I know the focus of your dissertation, I guess, is on the atonement, but you've done a fair number of articles, it seems, on the topic of prayer. I remember you did one in Phil Christie uh, that I found really useful um, on the topic of prayer. So why don't you just kind of walk us through a little bit when it comes to prayer, what exactly is it and what are we doing when we do it? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I would try to start out by defining it as minimalistically as possible. So here's a definition I've used in the past. Petitionary prayer is an act of communication directed at God, which takes a form of presenting a request to God for some state of affairs to come about. So that's really just describing what, we are, I don't want to say describing what we're doing because that gets into all kinds of things, but um, that's just a sort of very minimalist account that I think almost anybody could agree on, regardless of how you understand what happens when we pray. So um, the more difficult question, I think the one that forces us to sharpen this definition, this broad definition, is what exactly are we doing when we offer these petitions or these requests? Um, and I think there's several responses to that, but one version that I've called the ordinary account of prayer, uh, and by ordinary, I don't mean negative connotations. I don't mean like it's 
plain or boring or just regular old people hold it. Uh, I simply mean that um, it's the one that a lot of people tend to hold to. So, um, so this view basically holds um, four things, right? Uh, Stanley Grins describes this view. He says that prayer does four things. It affects those who make the petition. It affects those for whom the prayer is offered. It affects the host of spiritual forces in the cosmos. And it affects God, right? So the main idea here um, is that when we're making some sort of request, uh, what's happening is um, that we're doing something to God. And what is that something? Well, we're attempting to persuade God to act by giving God reasons to do the things that he wouldn't have otherwise done had not the prayer been offered. And you get that kind of view across all sorts of fields. Um, philosophers like Vincent Brumer, Peter Geach, Scott Davison, theologians like Stanley Grenz, um, uh, biblical scholars like David Crump, like you find that view pretty commonly. Um, so that's, I think that's, that's one view that's very common and that a lot of people start out with. Now, when we think about prayer and what we're doing, I think we need to consider that intuition, but also we need to consider our, how our views about prayer and freedom fit together or prayer and how God's attributes hold together. And I think that thinking about freedom and God's attributes actually forces us to um, be more specific and to sort of hone in on what we actually mean when we say that we're offering a prayer to God. Yeah, I don't think many of us have really spent time thinking about. Well, I think just the, the 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 point you're making about not just taking this one topic and doctrine in isolation, but we have to think about how it relates to all this other stuff that we believe. I mean, that's something that I don't even think a lot of us stop to even ponder most of the time. I mean, um, if you believe this about this, then that affects this other belief that you have, and maybe that makes that view incoherent or, or whatever else it is. But so, I mean, just that point in and of itself i think is helpful for us to be reminded that you know it does matter across the board like what we what view we take about prayer you know it like you said um, about the the attributes of god and um you know how we understand freedom i just i in the local church context um most people just aren't even they're not going there they're not thinking yeah. about um, how these things really tie together. Yeah, and I, I would venture to say that most people, even though on paper they might affirm something different, tend to at least function uh, or act as though um, the ordinary account is true, right? So that yeah. Yeah. prayer is attempting to persuade God to act. Yeah. Like they have to convince him somehow. Yeah. So, you know, just like any other doctrine, there's going to be, detractors there's going to be different questions so can you give us some different theolo theological and also philosophical challenges that um, you've read and encountered as it relates to prayer yeah um so some of these are pretty basic um not basic in like a negative sense but i remember um leading a junior high small group several years ago and some of these questions come up right so um so the most basic one probably is um, regarding God's omniscience. So the idea is if God is omniscient, mm -hmm. uh, he knows I'm going to pray before I even pray for it, then in what sense is prayer not redundant? 
right? So that's actually a pretty robust philosophical <laughs> objection. Um, but it's an objection that even like seventh graders think about, you know? Um, uh, another objection is concerns God's immutability. So if God can't change, right, what effect does my prayer have upon God? Right? If you accept the ordinary account, which says that prayer persuades God to act, then um, that doesn't really seem to hold with immutability, right? Because God doesn't change. So how are you going to change his mind? Um, the other, another objection concerns providence and freedom. Um, so the idea is that if God and human beings don't have libertarian freedom, then my prayer doesn't actually change anything. Uh, so those are a couple objections that I've thought about, tried to work on a little bit. Um, I haven't really done much regarding omniscience, but the immutability, providence, those are philosophical questions that concern me. Could you take just a moment or two to maybe pick one of those two objections and, and, you know, you said you spent a little bit of time on the, on the latter two thinking about those. Can you just offer um, maybe a summary response to the objection, maybe about Providence? Yeah. So, um, so about Providence um, there, so there, as you know, there are different models of Providence. Um, Very, very, very broadly, right. You have, like open theistic views, right? So God's knowledge and plans for the future are conditional upon our actions. That sort of view completely rules out any sort of um, theological determinism. Um, then you have Molinist views where God knows that we would pray for certain kinds of things. So God arranges the world so that um, those things happen. If we hadn't prayed, God would have created a different world instead. So through his middle knowledge um, of how we would pray in different circumstances, uh, our prayers end up making a difference in the way that the world actually is. Um, so those are some of the, the views about providence and petitioning prayer that tend to come up. Um, now, the question was, what was the question? <laughs> it was about providence <laughs> yeah, so and, how, and prayer, right? Like, yeah, if somebody says why is that, providence an objection? Yes, yes. Why, why is that an objection to um, the effectiveness or the coherence of, of the definition of prayer that we that we put forth, I guess? So um, I guess it would start with whatever your understanding of providence is and how that relates to your model of prayer. Yeah, so, um, so the, the Molinist account, it really tries to emphasize uh, the fact that in some real sense, our prayers change what I don't want to say change what God does because it's in his middle knowledge. Um, but that tries to reconcile how we have libertarian freedom. Uh, and at the same time, um, our prayers are not actually being causally effective upon God. Now, I think a bigger problem, or at least initially it seems like a bigger problem arises when somebody believes in theological determinism and by that, I just mean uh, a view upon which God decrees um, all things that would come about. Which would be the view, so, sorry to interrupt, but just for our listeners. So that would be the confessional view that the second London confession is, is putting forth that, you know, God has decreed all things that are going to come to pass. So just to kind of, I'm just trying to put it in yeah. um, context for the listeners, but sorry, continue. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's the view that God's providence is so complete and detailed that everything that happens in the world <laughs> is unconditionally decreed by God. And I think that unconditional part is really important, right? Cause it, that means that 
there's nothing um, that's acting upon him uh, or there are no conditions which come from outside of him which lead him to decree those things. Um, so I think that theological determinism creates some problems for the ordinary view of prayer. Um, and sort of the rub is this, that the ordinary view uh, says that our prayers are attempts to persuade God, right? That seems to put a condition upon the way that the world sort of ends up, right? Um, that would mean that God's decrees are not unconditional. It would mean that God's decrees are affected by our actions. Um, so that, that's a, just a straight-up incompatibility between theological determinism and the ordinary account. Now, a person can has several options, right? They can either affirm theological determinism, right, the view that God's providence is unconditional and it's so complete and detailed that everything happens unconditionally decreed by God. So they can affirm theological determinism and affirm the ordinary account, and just deny that petitioning prayer is effective, right? So none of our prayers actually work. Like that's the way prayer is, but it turns out that because of theological determinism, nothing actually happens. Now, I think nobody would be satisfied with an account like that because um, we do want to say that prayer is effective in some right. sense, right? Yeah. Um, we could deny theological determinism and affirm the ordinary account. Now, if you do that, then you've moved outside of your confessional bounds, which may or may not be a good thing. It sort of depends on um, when you think it's appropriate to let go of certain confessions. Um, so I, th I take it that a lot of people wouldn't want to do that. Uh, you can do the reverse. You can deny theological determinism and also deny the ordinary account. But also that seems really weird because you don't end up with... <laughs> Um, you don't really end up with a doctrine of prayer and you yeah, also no lost your confession. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think the last and best option is to affirm, at least this is what I want to do, affirm theological determinism and deny the ordinary account. And that means that you need to provide some other account of petitioning prayer. Which you've done, you did that in your Phil Christie article, um, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so in that article, I provide what's called what I call the secondary causal account of prayer. And um, let me just read exactly what that is, because with some of these philosophy things, I think it's really important to be very precise and detailed. Um, we don't really have because because the nuances are so specific that it's good to like read it out loud. So, um, so this is what I call the secondary causal account. It goes like this. Petitionary prayers that are offered to God spontaneously, meaning voluntarily, um, meaning that like it comes from within the agent. So petitionary prayers that are offered to God spontaneously by agents who are secondary causes do not attempt to persuade God to change his course of action by giving God reasons to act. Rather, petitionary prayers create a change in the praying agent and are the predestined means by which God enacts his decreed state of affairs. Um, so in this account, basically what I'm saying is that, um, yes, our prayers are part of God's unconditional decrees. However, our prayers are instruments or means by which God brings about those other decrees 
um, that he's made. So our prayers actually sort of actualize or bring about um, things that God has decreed. That's awesome stuff. Yeah, and, and that's, yeah, I mean, that's actually just from a pastoral perspective. I mean, I wouldn't have articulated it that well, but I mean, that's how I would answer that question. If somebody basically asked me, well, does, does prayer change God's mind? You know, I would, I would try to go back to, um, God is totally sovereign and his providence is meticulous, but prayer is the means, um, that he uses to accomplish certain things. So our, our prayers are effective in that way in that if, if we didn't pray for X, Y, Z, then it wouldn't happen. But yeah. also it's not like that is, you know, catching God off guard or, um, that it's creating some change in God or something like that. So, I mean, I, I'm going to have to go read your article now. So yeah, <laughs> thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. So what I would want to really emphasize, um, about that view, because I think from a past, from a pastoral perspective, we don't want to put forth any view or articulate a view that actually causes people to pray less. I think that would be absolutely a right. huge, yeah. uh, huge loss. Um, I think one of the strengths of this kind of view is that it gives an account of the way that our prayer actually changes yes. the world, right? It doesn't change God, but it has actual effects uh, upon the world. Um, and I think the Bible is pretty clear that God does some things uh, or some things happen in the world because we pray for them. Now, it depends on what you you understand by the word because now if because means that God did something that he would have not otherwise done uh, because our prayers persuaded God, then this model that I'm putting forth doesn't work. But if you mean, if because means that our prayers are part of a sequence of events that um, obtain prior to this other thing happening, then I think you could say that um, the secondary causal account actually can give an explanation of why we can say that X happened because I prayed for it. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. No, that, that definitely makes sense. Yeah, I think it makes total sense. So before we let you go, Chris, I know we, we've had a blast talking to you about the atonement last week, talking to you about prayer this week. Um, why don't you give us a little bit, um, I guess, an opportunity, where can we find you if we want to connect with you? I know me and you connected on Twitter, so I know you're there. Mm-hmm. Um, where else can they find you if they're interested in your, in your writings? Where are you writing? Um, what, does that, what does that look like for our listeners who are interested? Yeah. Um, so Twitter is probably my main, um, I guess, social media um, outlet. I tend to tweet a lot. Some of the stuff I tweet is pretty dumb. Some of it is more more, uh, sort of theological, philosophical, whatever. Um, I just tweet what I feel like, and I think it represents me pretty well. Um, Yeah, you're one of my favorite Twitter people. Yeah, thanks. Um, So, Twitter, I also have a blog. Um, Oh, I forgot the Twitter handle is at CWOZNICKY, as in C is in Chris, and then WOZNICKY is my last name, W O Z N I C K I. I also have a blog. I'm not as active on the blog as I used to be. You know, when I started my PhD program, um, it was really hard to try to maintain that. Now, when I was working in in ministry, that it was easier to blog. And part of the reason I would blog quite a bit was because it was a way for me to think about certain issues that would come up. Um, 
in the ministry. So it kept me sort of studying and reading and researching and doing all that stuff. Uh, but my blog is the same as my Twitter handle. It's cwoznicki.com. Um, those are the main sort of consistent outlets. And then I'll ha- I have random articles coming out in the next few months. Um, one in expository times. Uh, one that should be coming out in the Evangelical Review of Theology. One in perichoresis. Um, and those are... Uh, perichoresis is open access, so that's good. Um, I think the Evangelical Review of Theology might be open access too. And yeah, I have a few other things coming out. Yeah, I feel like you're a model of uh, being a machine with these articles, man. <laughs> I can't yeah. keep up, but um, well, I've should, always... You should see my uh, doctoral advisor. <laughs> <You should laughs> that's see true. See uh, I, <laughs> uh, yeah, I love, obviously, Oliver, and I feel like he comes out with something like new books like every week, right? Yeah, right. Um, but, you know, I've been personally i've been edified by your own writing i've been edified by your twitter feed i've been encouraged and challenged and thought provoked by it so um i am very um thankful and all, and really honored that you were took the time to come on and talk with us about these two things uh and i encourage any of our listeners to check you out to follow you to read your stuff um i think it's great material i think you're doing great work uh not only for you know theology but for the church So I commend our listeners to check out Chris's stuff. Um, It's really, really, really good. Yeah, thank you, Chris. We really had a great time with you. Absolutely. It was fun. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.